Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. In the last couple of episodes, we've been looking at the Holy Spirit section of the Nicene Creed. And this section continues, we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So what is it about baptism that informs us about who the Holy Spirit is, or how do we know the Holy Spirit in and through the sacrament of baptism? It's great to be with you. Baptism is the one sacrament mentioned in this basic statement of what Christians believe. Why, why does baptism have this privileged place in the creed? What's that about? Well, to understand that and what that meant to the early church, we need to look both at how the early church did baptism, what baptism was for the early church, and then what baptism meant to the early church, how the early church understood baptism theologically. So if we want to know the kind of hows of baptism, just what did baptism look like, we can look at this document called the Didache. And the Didache, most scholars think is a first century document, so it's basically contemporary with a lot of the biblical writings, and in part, it's kind of a how-to manual for how to be the church. It gives some basic theological instruction, and it gives some basic liturgical instruction. And there's a little section on the sacrament of baptism. In the section, it says that baptism, if you're going to baptize someone, it has to be done by immersion. So the person actually has to be dunked under the water, and not just in any water, but in cold running water. So it has to be immersion in a stream or a river or a creek or the ocean. But it says, continuing on, if you don't have running water, still water is fine. And if you don't have cold water, warm water will do. And if you can't dunk someone, if you can't fully immerse someone, sprinkle the water on their head. But the key things in baptism, according to the Didache, are water and the formula, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it has kind of preferences that are stated about immersion, about running water, about cold water, but it also says these are not essential to the sacrament. You just have to have water, whether someone's going in all the way, whether it's sprinkled on their head, and this formula of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is always baptism into the Holy Trinity, not just baptism into the Father, not baptism into the Son, not baptism into the Holy Spirit alone, but baptism into God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Writing about a hundred years later, the North African theologian Tertullian has a text on baptism called On Baptism, And in it, he talks about some of the how-tos of baptism and also the theology of baptism. So in writing about water, he says that, in a sense, no body of water is superior to any other body of water for baptism. So if you were baptized above a little tiny font, water sprinkled on your head, no bigger than a cereal bowl, That is no worse than being baptized in the River Jordan in exactly the same spot where Christ was baptized. Because in Genesis, in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, page 1, in the beginning, God is speaking creation. God the Father is speaking creation into being through the Word of God, God the Son, and we're told the Spirit of God 
rests over the waters. And so for Tertullian, God the Holy Spirit is in a sense sanctifying all waters to be the material of this miracle of baptism, of the sacrament of baptism. And so all waters anywhere are appropriate for a baptism. Tertullian also talks about when is a good time for a baptism. And he says that the two best times are Easter. And by Easter, he really meant the kind of Easter vigil, the the early morning of Easter day or the night, late night before Easter day, or Pentecost, the day of the descent of the Holy Spirit. These, he says, are the times to do a baptism. But then he says, on the other hand, All days belong to the Lord, and all hours of every day belong to the Lord. So there is never a bad time for a baptism. There's never an inappropriate day for a baptism. So on the one hand, it's great to do it at Easter or Pentecost. Those are such beautiful, traditional, amazing days where you are tied in with the kind of living action of the church throughout time in your baptism. On the other hand, a Wednesday at 3 p.m., any given Sunday during the liturgy, it's always a good time for a baptism. So if you visited an early Christian church, they would say, once they realized that you weren't a Roman soldier that was coming to round them all up and drag them all off to martyrdom, welcome, it's great to have you. We'd love to tell you all about Christianity. We'll hope you'll stay for the first half of the liturgy. And you would come in, you would hear prayers, you would hear readings from the Old Testament, maybe some of the epistles, a gospel, you would hear a sermon, you would have some more prayers, and they would say, all right, thanks for coming. Have a good, have a good Sunday and they would kick you out. And everybody else would stay inside the church, and things were clearly continuing to go on. But if you weren't baptized, you could not be part of the second half of the liturgy, the liturgy of the Eucharist, the liturgy of the altar, the liturgy of the the table, because the baptized were the priests of the church, and they were led by a bishop, by an ordained priest, um, But the baptized were the ones praying the Eucharistic prayer together. And that was something so sacred, it was only for, in a sense, the priests of the church. Priests not meaning people who wear like pieces of plastic around their neck, but all baptized Christians are the royal priesthood of the church. And so that was a sacred time where only those who had been inducted into, not a special club, into the mystical body of Christ would gather around and pray that the bread and the wine, through the action of God the Holy Spirit, would become the body and blood of Christ. And then they would receive that body, the body would receive the body, becoming more and more the body. The human body, which is joined to Adam in a sense, the child of Adam, the body which is vulnerable to death and to suffering, would receive into it the immortal body, and that immortal body would begin to kill death within the mortal body of a regular person. So, you'd get to go, you get to hear the lessons, you get to say the prayers, and they would say, now get out of here. And so, you might do this for a number of weeks, a number of months, a number of years, just going for the liturgy of the Word. And at some point, you might say, you know what? I think I'm ready to take the plunge. I think I'm ready to be baptized. And they would say, that's great. And they would enroll you as a catechumen. And the catechumenate was this kind of school for teaching Christianity. And a catechumen was a student in that school. In some places, that was a kind of one-year program. In some places, that was a three-year program. And in it, you would study Holy Scripture. 
You would hear about the life of Christ, the teachings of Christ. You would learn about the actions of God as portrayed in the Old Testament. You would learn about who God is. And you might start with reading the Gospel of Matthew, and this might be led by um, a specialized person who was a teacher of, of catechumens, who was kind of the, the master of the catechumenal school. You might be led by your bishop. You might be led by your priest. And they would walk the catechumens through the Gospel of Matthew. Then you might move on to the second Gospel written, to the Gospel of Mark, then to the Gospel of Luke. But usually the Gospel of John was reserved for those who had been baptized. You wouldn't study the Gospel of John, which is so spiritual, so filled with the mystery and revelation of the Holy Spirit, until you had the Holy Spirit within you as a baptized person. So you would go through these three years of preparation, there would be fasting involved, there would be um, acts of, of spiritual discipline, of ascesis, of kind of giving up things, giving up pride and anger and so forth, sometimes giving up wealth and giving to the poor. You'd be making lots of sacrifices, and it would be this really hardcore, intense experience. And then you would get to the baptism itself. You would get to the night before Easter, and late at night in a candlelit service, you know, you would be coming, you would be in a different garment, everything would be different, you'd been preparing for this moment for years and years, and you were ready to take this plunge of baptism, and you would go, and Tertullian says, and then it's being dipped in water, or having water sprinkled on your head, and a few prayers, and that's it. And he says that humanity is so incredulous Uh, because of the simplicity of the work of God. How can a little bit of water, a little bit of prayers, change you entirely, change everything about you, change everything about your kind of life, your destiny in a sense, like everything about you gets changed in baptism, and yet is this short, simple rite? How is that? And he says that humans are thrown off by the simplicity and the power of God. There's a story of Naaman the Syrian who goes to a prophet and says, I want to be cured of leprosy. And the prophet says, okay, well, go dunk yourself in the river. And he said, no, no, I don't want to be cured that way. I want you to like send me on some quest and I have to climb up a mountain and I have to steal a golden egg from a golden chicken. And like, I want something really that's a big deal. And the prophet's like, well, you can be cured if you just follow my instructions or not. Take your pick. So Naaman's like, all right, I'll give it a shot. Goes, he's cured. Very thankful. In the same way for Tertullian, we, without all this pomp and circumstance, without people clashing symbols in the streets, without you having to give away your entire income to build some temple or whatever, you go and you're dipped in the water and these prayers are said over you. And people are like, how can this be the most transformative moment of my life? I don't even feel anything. I mean, I feel wet, but that's sort of it. It didn't take a long time. It's just the same priest who I see every Sunday anyway. What is the big deal? But Tertullian says, in this moment, you have attained eternity. You have, in a sense, exited being a citizen of time and space and become a citizen of eternity, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In this moment, you have died to the old self. You have risen in Christ and you are a member of his mystical body. So in this very simple act, everything is different. Everything has changed. And so in baptism, Tertullian says, death is actually washed away from our bodies. 
death is washed from us. Sin, which for the early church, death and sin are kind of one in a sense. Sin is washed from us. We are freed from the power of sin, freed from the power of death. Before baptism, we are prisoners of sin. We are prisoners of death. After baptism, we are freed. But that, for Tertullian, is not the whole point. For Tertullian, in a sense, the washing free of death and sin is making the path straight for the Lord. St. John the Baptist talks about making his way straight, making straight the road, the highway of the Lord when he comes to us. And so for Tertullian, washing away death and sin is making the road straight for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis, when Adam is made, he is made of clay, and then God breathes his Holy Spirit into Adam. And so for Adam, before his fall, and presumably Eve before her fall, the Holy Spirit is the breath of life within them. It is this direct action of the Holy Spirit that is animating them, that is guiding them. Like their life is literally the life of the Holy Spirit moving within them. Not simply life created by the Holy Spirit, but he is their life. At the fall, for Tertullian, Adam and Eve lose the Holy Spirit as their actual guiding life. Life is still a gift of God, the Holy Spirit, but it is no longer the Holy Spirit moving within them, guiding their actions. Their likeness unto God, if you remember in Genesis, humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. For Tertullian, that likeness, being like God, acting like God, doing things like God, this is the result of God within them. God the Holy Spirit moving within them, working within them. When they lose the Holy Spirit in this way, then they lose that likeness under God. They are no longer like God. They're no longer acting like God because it is is no longer God acting within and through them. So in baptism for Tertullian, we have death and sin washed from us, and the way is made straight for the coming of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. The Holy Spirit comes to us in our baptism, in the sealing with oil that happens after our baptism, and we return to the image and likeness of God. We begin to be like unto God again because God the Holy Spirit is moving in us and working through us. We are born again in baptism. So, if you ask whether or not you're a born-again Christian, if you're baptized, you are, by definition, a born-again Christian. You have been born a second time. And it is a birth not to death. So in this life, we are constantly living this process of dying. We're running headlong towards the grave. But it is a birth to life, eternal life. But it's not yet a done deal. So you can be born under certain circumstances, And great that you were born. That gives you infinite potential for doing all sorts of things. But what you choose to do with that life is up to you. And so Tertullian says that Christians are little fishes. And by this, he's kind of referencing this this early church acronym, ichthus. Ichthus in Greek literally means fish. Uh, But it, for the early church, stood for um, Jesus Christ, Son of God, the Savior. So if you um, if you look at the letters that begin that sentence, then those spell out ichthus. You have to do a little bit of creative uh, spelling with that. Um, but he says that we are little fish 
in after the model of the big fish, who is Christ. And he says, it is no surprise that little fish are born in water. So we are born in water. We are born at the day of our baptism. We become uh, little Christs. We become followers of Christ. We become Christians in our baptism. But what's more, he says, fish have to continue living in water to be safe. So if a fish jumps out of the lake and says, like, I'm going to live on dry ground and I'm going to go buy a Honda Fit and get a job as an accountant, his life will be extremely short because fish are not meant to breathe air, much less drive Honda Fits and do books for people. But in the same way, if you are a Christian, your life has to be spent in the water of baptism. Once you decide to leave those waters, then death is the result. So we are not only radically changed in our baptism, we have to live out that change. We have to embrace that change. And it's kind of a tricky thing to think about, but I kind of think about it in terms of marriage. So on the day of my wedding, the priest said, now Bertie and Rahel are married. Well, he said, uh, now with the giving and receiving of rings, etc., 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 what uh, God has joined together, let no one put asunder. And we were, at that moment, married. Like, we were 100% a married couple. We had exchanged rings. The priest had done his part. Uh, the church had gathered around and prayed for us. We were then received the blessing of the priest. We signed the marriage license. We sent it off to the state. Like, we were as married as you can get, in one sense. But if after that service... We had gone to the door of the church and shaken hands and said, oh, that was a great experience. Yeah, we should, we should get together again sometime. Maybe I'll call you in a few weeks. Maybe we can go on a date or something. That's not really marriage. Instead of doing that, we moved in together. We shared our life together. We had kids together. We went through moves together. We had various struggles together. And with every year of our marriage, we really continued to grow more and more married. And at any point, one of us could say, um, you know, I, I don't want to grow more and more married. I'm going to go off and do my own thing, and I'm going to live in Florida, and I'm going to, you know, whatever. Um, and then we would become less married. So even though we were married in this absolute way by the church, by the state, um, we have to live into our marriage. We have to live out our marriage. And if we didn't do that, or if we stopped doing that, we would kind of be married in name only. In the same way, baptism is actually an effectual sacrament. You are completely changed after baptism. In a sense, there is the person who lived before they were baptized, and there's the person who lives after baptism, and they're distinct people. On the other hand, you have the choice of whether or not you want to live out that baptism, live into that baptism, if you want to remain within the waters of baptism. So if we want to have the Holy Spirit guiding us, living within us, moving within us, if we want to move closer and closer to who Christ is, if we want to actually live out our baptism, what does this look like? Does this look like following a bunch of rules perfectly? Does this look like earning heaven through our good behavior? Absolutely not. If you ask St. Paul what it looks like to live this baptized life, to actually live into your baptism, to act out your baptism, he says something very surprising. In the sixth chapter of Romans, he says, a baptized life, a life where you're actually living out your baptism, looks like 
death. Death is what baptism looks like because baptism is a form of death. We are dying in our baptism and then we are raised again. We are dying to the body of Adam. We are dying to the fallen human nature, to the flesh. The power of sin over us is broken, and we are raised in the body of Christ. So when we are living out our baptism, we are living into our baptism, it's nothing that we ourselves actually do. We are just, in a sense, getting out of the way so that the Holy Spirit can work in us and work through us. We are getting out of the way so that we can actually be members of the body of Christ. When I'm focused on myself and me, me, me all the time, then there's really, that kind of fills up all the air. But when I decrease so that Christ can increase, then I start really living out my baptism. So St. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. That in those waters of baptism, we actually drown and the old self dies. Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Writing a few hundred years later, St. John of Damascus says that in baptism, you have these kind of two factors going on. You have the water in which you are buried. You have the water in which you actually die. And then you have God, the Holy Spirit, who is your new life after your death. So you die to this limited mortal old self, and you are raised again in the life of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit, a walking member of the body of Christ. So Paul continues, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we die with Christ and we are raised with Christ. We know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be destroyed. So we die in baptism so that that body of sin, the body which is vulnerable to sin and evil and death, is actually destroyed. And we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be dead to sin? What does it mean to stay in the waters of baptism? If I am dead to sin, what does that look like? Well, I have these really dumb, crazy narratives that pop up in my mind. And one is, if I only have a ton of money, I will be invulnerable to all the dangers of the world. I will be totally happy. I will be able to fill my life with all these joyful objects, which are just going to give me infinite happiness. And this lie just sort of goes off in my mind. And I think like, well, yeah, that's true. That's, I mean, if 
it's true. If I had like billions of dollars, like there is nothing that could get me down. I mean, life would be perfect. And when I stop and examine that thought, I think that's insane. Like billionaires get cancer, billionaires have heartbreak, billionaires get bored, billionaires have a total lack of meaning in their lives, which makes them feel like, why is anything worth it? Why do I even get out of bed in the morning? It's not as though billionaires somehow are invulnerable to the slings and arrows of fortune, but without questioning it, I sort of believe that. And if that thought goes completely unquestioned, then I'm going to act in a way which does everything to make myself a billionaire. I'm going to pursue money over everything, maybe over the Ten Commandments, maybe over the lives of others, maybe over what God has actually called me to do. And I'm going to say, to heck with love, to heck with beauty, to heck with compassion, to heck with justice, to heck with being even a non-murdering, non-stealing good person. And I'm going to club you over the head and take your wallet because that gets me a little bit closer to a billion dollars. But when I am dead to sin, when I am dead to that voice of rebellion against God, that same thought pops up and I say, Nope. God actually said, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt follow God. Put God first, not billions of dollars. Not having infinite girlfriends or boyfriends. Not having the biggest, richest meals you've ever had. Not having all these various things that our minds sort of think, oh, if you just have this thing, you will be satisfied. You will have total joy. Being dead to these things is simply saying, no, I trust that God is my infinite happiness. And when we reject the giant meal, when we reject pursuing um, putting our whole life in the service of becoming billionaires, when we reject uh, murdering, when we reject stealing, we're not in any way earning brownie points with God. This does God no good. We're not building a stairway to heaven. We're not getting our way into eternity by earning it or something like that. All that we're doing is taking away these obstacles which stand between us and God. We're not becoming better people in the sense of like, oh, you're so fantastic now. All we're doing is removing these roadblocks that make it so that I can't see God. I am making my life more present to God. I am paying more attention to God, and I'm creating more room for the Holy Spirit through dying to sin. And so St. Paul says, therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not let sin push you around. Do not let gluttony push you around. Do not let greed push you around. Do not let lust push you around. Do not let the desire for a new house or a new car or being popular or having people like you or having a better job, whatever it is, push you around. Instead, you hear those voices and you're like the dead. There's a wonderful story in the lives of the Desert Fathers in which this monk takes a group of young monks out into the desert and he has one of them bring a shovel. And they get to this graveyard, and he says, start digging. And so the guy's like, well, this is actually somebody's grave. You want me to dig a new grave? And he says, no, dig right here. So he digs a big hole. They see, they get down to this grave, and there's this human skeleton. These human remains are there at the bottom of this hole, and they've just been dug up by these monks. And the senior monk says, okay, watch this. 
and he bends down to this body and he says, oh, the day we lost you was maybe the toughest day the world has ever endured. The entire world was flooded with the tears of almost every person on the earth because you were a prince among men. You were just this incredible person. You were a genius. I mean, Steve Jobs had nothing on you. You could have invented a billion Apple products. I mean, you were you were just, you were so amazing. You were the nicest guy, the smartest guy, the funniest guy. Everybody loved you and now you're gone. It's just, it's too much to bear. And he turns to the monks and he says, how did he respond? And they said, uh, he didn't say anything. He's dead. And he's like, okay, watch this. So he bends down to the skeleton and he says, you were such a jerk. The day you died, the world heaved this huge sigh of relief. Everybody hated you. People lied to your face saying they liked you because they were just afraid of you. But you were just, you were literally the worst human being on the planet. I mean, Hitler, Stalin, they had nothing on you. You were the worst. You're a bad human being. You didn't care about anyone. You were insincere. Your jokes were not funny. You thought they were, but you were the only one laughing. So he continues to insult this body. And then he turns to the monks and says, what did he say? And they said, nothing. He's dead. And the old monk said, be like the dead. Be like the dead. Don't be actuated by pride. Don't be actuated by fear. Don't be actuated by the opinions of people. Don't be actuated by money. Don't be actuated by lust or gluttony. Don't be motivated by all of the stuff of the world. Be dead to all that. Not to be this great person, not to be a great saint, not to work your way into heaven, but so that there is room for the Holy Spirit who you received as your life in baptism, has room to actually work in you, work on you, transform you, work through your actions, through your words, through your thoughts. This is what it is to be baptized. And this is why baptism is essential to the Christian faith, essential to our life as Christians. And this is why it sits so prominently in the creed. It is in baptism that we we receive God the Holy Spirit, that we are washed free from death, and that we are incorporated into the body of Christ, the body of our Lord and Savior, so that we can be little twigs resting in the one who is the true vine. A twig on a grapevine, it can't hold anything. It is frail. It is tiny. It breaks. It's almost useless. But that little twig, when it's resting in the vine, when it's shooting off from the vine, is receiving the life of the vine. And through the life of the vine, that little, tiny, helpless twig bursts forth in these giant clusters of grapes, bursts forth in fruit that resembles the life of the vine, that is the product of the life of the vine. And so through us, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ the Son of God, God the Father, is made known to the world, is seen in the world, and it all happens through us, who are the baptized Christians, the members of his holy church. So, a little bit about what baptism meant to the early church, and uh, I hope that you will join me again when we will finish up the content of the Holy Spirit section of the Nicene Creed. Thanks for being with me for the History of Christianity.